can forget things. And sometimes that can be such a source of frustration on like, where did I leave my keys? Like something so small. But we can forget lots of things. And, and we can forget things of great significance. And when it comes to spiritual things, let's just all be honest. We can all forget. We can all forget how God deeply loves us. We can get gospel amnesia. Like we get hit over the head by life. And then we forget. And we forget that we already have a God who loves us. And so we get into this routine of trying to justify ourselves with reading the Bible or attending worship gatherings or, or serving or trying to be faithful or somehow trying to earn it or to be, make ourselves worthy. We forget. We forget that it's already been done. It is finished. We forget. We forget the gospel. We forget that we are forgiven. We forget that we have no shame. If you're a believer, then your shame and your guilt was nailed through the hands of Jesus onto the cross of Calvary. And we bear that sin and that shame and that guilt no more. It is as far from the east is from the west. And yet, we forget. We go about living our daily lives as though these realities are actually not true. We, we forget, and so we walk in this shame or this guilt, or we feel like we're not forgiven, and these things are lies, but we forget the truth. We, we forget that we can walk in victory because Jesus already won it on the cross. We, we forget that Jesus alone can satisfy our soul. We forget, and so we turn to other things of this world to try to bring hope or peace or joy or just find meaning or purpose. And we forget that all of that's already found in the person of Jesus Christ. And so what we need is to remember. We need to be reminded of who Jesus is and who we are in Christ and remember how to walk in this newness of life that we have been given because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. So we need to remind ourselves of the gospel every single day. And we need a family to remind us. You are forgiven. You are redeemed. You are indwelt by the Spirit. You are not defined by that failure. And so stand up, son or daughter of the king, and walk with your head held high and walk in obedience and walk reflecting his stunning glory. And we have to remember, because life comes at us fast and hard and sometimes it's confusing and we can get dizzy and forget. I'll tell you one more thing that we tend to forget. I've given you a list, but I'll give you one more. We can sometimes, I think, forget that we are in a war zone. We forget. We actually think that we are living in a country club, on a golf course, where, yes, you're outside, and yes, there's trees, and yes, you're in nature, but it's not really the wild, okay? It's a golf course. Nothing against golf, but you're not in danger. Maybe if you're not paying attention, you're run over by a golf cart. But other than that, like, you're in no real danger on a golf course. And yet, we tend to think of ourselves as though our life of following Jesus is that of leisure. It's that of comfort and of convenience. And we forget that we are actually in the middle of a DMZ, of a war zone. This is the reality of our existence, and there are real spiritual bullets flying all around this, and if you would just look, you will see the wounded. 
They're all around. And we forget. We actually forget. And we can see the effects of the prince of the power of the air. We can see the effects of the real enemy, the enemy of our soul, Satan, who is at work. And we see him keeping people blind and in bondage in his kingdom of darkness. And today we're going to consider, we're going to meditate on Jesus' letter to the church of Philadelphia. And how this is a church that did not forget this is a church that was reminded of who they are in Christ, of who their Savior is, and of the fact that they were in a very real war zone and they were aware of it, and they lived a life of faithfulness to God. It's an amazing letter because, as we'll see in a minute, there is no condemnation. There is no criticism. There is no critique. It is only praise and reminding and encouragement for this church. This was a good church that was following Jesus in the middle of persecution, in the middle of suffering and of poverty, like we've seen other churches. Well, same thing with Philadelphia. And yet, in the face of all the satanic onslaught, they were faithful. They stood their ground, and they took it to the enemy. That's what we see here with Philadelphia, a church who understands the call to take it to the enemy, a vibrant church that was truly radiating the glory of God. Let's read in Revelation 3, beginning in verse 7, about this church in Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut who shuts and no one opens, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, Behold, I will make them come and bow before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. And that's so powerful. They will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about my a patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, we looked last week at the church in Sardis. Sardis was well-known, popular, big, impressive, looked great on the outside, had all the appearance of life and of being at work in the kingdom, and yet they were dead. They had all the appearances, but in actuality, they were dead. See, you have the opposite with Philadelphia. See, they're not impressive. They don't look awesome on the outside. They look small. They look insignificant. It would be one of those churches you would drive by and say, yeah, there's nothing going on in there. It says you have little power, not well known, and yet they were world changers. God was at work through this church. You see, in the kingdom of God, oftentimes what looks impressive and significant is actually dead. And what looks small and feeble is powerful in the kingdom. Things aren't what they seem in the kingdom of God. 
And the whole focus of this series that we'll wrap up next week as we finish off the seventh letter to the seventh church of Asia Minor of modern-day Turkey, the focus has been on us being a church that is radiant, a church that becomes healthy and vibrant, that is radiating the glory of Jesus, the Jesus that we see in Revelation chapter 1, because that is the purpose. Like, what is the church for? Why is there a church? Why are we gathered here? But even more importantly, why do we even exist? Why does any church exist? Why does the global church of God exist? Why? What is her purpose? What is her reason for existing? Why did Jesus promise to build his church? Why? For the display of his glory. That's what this is. This this gathering is designed to be a manifestation, a display, a radiating of the glory of God. When people see Renewed Church, may they see a glimpse of what God is like. Faithful, forgiving, merciful, loving, generous, just like our God. That's what we're supposed to be, a reflection of who God is, a reflection of Jesus himself. And you're like, well, what is, what is Jesus like? Well, let me refresh your memory. Turn to page one, back to chapter one. This is the Jesus, the resurrected king of the universe, the creator, the sustainer. This is who we're called to reflect. Revelation 1, verse 12. John's vision. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And turning, I saw the seven golden lampstands in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash round his chest. The hairs on his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in the furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he, he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Oh God in heaven, as we read your word, We're like John. We fall before you like dead men and women. We are so in awe of who you are. We know the victory is yours in this battle that we live in. And we, as your people, just depend on you. We confess before you that our hearts depend on you. We rely on you. We trust in your sovereign purposes. We want our lives to be all about displaying your glory for the praise of your name. We don't want any praise for ourselves. You deserve all the praise. You are worthy. You are supremely beautiful and majestic and wise. We are just humbled before you. And we want to be a church that's on mission. That we do take it to the enemy. So will you speak to us now? Grip our hearts with your glory and may we respond to you with love and trust and obedience. And we ask it that you would be magnified, glorified, Jesus. Amen. Let me give you the primary truth from 
Revelation 3, 7 through 13, this letter to the church in Philadelphia, the overriding truth that permeates the whole letter is that a radiant church recognizes the supreme worth of Jesus. Let me say that again. It is all about the supreme worth of Jesus, his supremacy, his excellence, his supreme worth. And so a vibrant church is one that recognizes the supreme worth of Jesus. He has made us for this purpose. We literally exist to recognize it, to see it, to desire the supreme worth of Jesus. And verse 7 in this letter we just read, establishing who Jesus is and is showing us why he is supremely worthy, like his absolute infinite worth. And there's three descriptions of Jesus in verse 7. It says that Jesus is the Holy One. And then it says that he, Jesus is the true one and that he has the key of David. So there's three specific descriptions. Let's look at those one by one and understand how this is revealing the supreme worth of Jesus. So the first one, Jesus is the Holy One. Now that phrase, the Holy One, the Holy One of God is a very common Old Testament description of the Messiah or of God himself. So like, for example, in one book in Isaiah, 29 times, you see this one description, the Holy One or the Holy One of God. It's used oftentimes for the Messiah. And so when Jesus is the Holy One, described in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, when he is called the Holy One, it's not random. It's not new. It's rooted in the entire Old Testament that describes God as the Holy One. So Jesus is saying, I am God, that he is divine, that he, let's not, let's not play games. Let's be honest. Jesus says that he is one with God and he is fully God. He is the Holy One. So completely and fully, perfectly God. Jesus is transcendent and majestic when you hear him say that he is. He just says, I am the Holy One. He is completely sinless, without sin, without blemish of any kind, no darkness whatsoever. Like it says in John 1, that he is light with no darkness, completely holy, perfect in all of his ways. And so Jesus, his very being is holy. His character is holy. His mind is holy. His motives are holy. His judgments are holy. His actions are holy. Every single reality about who Jesus is and what he does is perfectly holy. At the very essence of who the second member of the Trinity is, you have this word, holy. Because everything about him is holy. Think about it. His love for you is a holy love. His judgments are holy judgments. His purposes are holy purposes. Everything about who Jesus is or what he does, the word holy defines what it is and how it's carried out because that is essence, holy Holy, holy is the Lamb. The word holy refers to like otherness or apartness. And so the word holy means that Jesus is totally apart or other from us. And so whenever we talk about us being holy and having the Holy Spirit, that means that we're set apart from this world for God's purposes. And so we talk about marriage being holy because you are setting yourself apart just for your spouse. You're not going to share your heart. You're not going to share your body with anyone else. You're set apart just for him or for her, which is part of sidebar, soapbox. It's going to get slippery, so I word like good traction on my shoes here. Um, this is the problem with social media. 
there's nothing holy about it. It's like there's, there's nothing anymore that is just for you and for your family. Everyone has to see what you ate for dinner last night. Everyone has to know where you went last Thursday. Everyone has to know how you dance in front of you know, your phone or whatever. It's like there's nothing set apart. There's nothing holy anymore. It's all, there, it's all just out there for everyone to see. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Where have we come or who have we become? We're called to be holy and set apart because Jesus is holy and infinitely apart from us. And he calls us through his spirit to be holy. Exodus 15 verse 11 captures what holiness means, how he stands alone. It says, who is like you, O Lord? Among the gods, who is like you, majestic in holiness? Awesome in glorious deeds and doing wonders. Who is like our God? That phrase is describing his holiness. But he also says, Jesus, he says that he is the true one. Now, we live in an era, if we're honest, and this is not hard to know, that Truth is relative. Jesus says he is the true one, but we live in the era where, man, truth is not absolute. Phrases like, I have my truth, then you have your truth, or I'm okay and you're okay, and there is no objective standard for truth. Like when I talk to my children, they're middle school and high school, and they'll be taught about things like, Darwin, evolution, bunk. It's, it's feces. It's bad. It's not true. And so do not believe this newfangled theology that says, oh, we are theistic evolutionists. That is a lie from hell. It's not in the Bible. Okay, it's just so that we're very clear on who we are as a church. We affirm the authority, the inspiration, the inerrancy, the infallibility of the word of God. We submit to its authority. We read it for what it says and we don't play games with it. And so what you see with our world today where truth has become relative and then someone in class might say, but what about creation? And the teacher then says, well, that is your religious beliefs. We're talking about science right now. Makes you want to just throw up. Because I'm talking about truth, absolute truth. Not, oh, that's your religious preference. And it's like we've taken truth and we've relegated it down to being like ice cream. Everyone likes ice cream. The question is, what flavor do you like? Like, I might like Chunky Monkey. Maybe you prefer some Dutch chocolate. I'm partial to Tres Leches, if you, if you know what that is. It's really good. Bluebell has some. Or Butter Pecan. There's some really good ice cream flavors out there. And so maybe you have a preference on what ice cream flavor you prefer. But let's just all agree that Everyone likes ice cream, and so there really isn't a difference. It's just a preference. Truth is a preference. I like this truth, and you like that flavor of truth, but in the end, we're all right. That is asinine. That is the very word truth. It, what the word means is that it is rooted in fact or reality. That's what the word truth means means that it's based on something. There is a standard to measure it by. If you don't have a standard, then you can't have truth. There has to be an objective standard by which you measure what is truth, what is holy. Well, what is holy? God. And so how do you define morality? God. His character defines what is right. How do you define truth? The character of God, the unchanging, objective truth 
is God. He is the standard by which we measure what is truth. And so when Jesus says that he is the true one, understand, he's not only establishing the existence of objective, absolute truth. I mean, he is. He is establishing that there is a standard. He's establishing that there, it does exist. There is absolute truth, and it's not preference. It's true or it's not, but he's doing more than that. He's saying that he is the embodiment of truth. It's not just out there. It's Jesus. He embodies truth. Jesus is the truth, the way, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. He is the truth. John 8, 31, he says, You abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Jesus himself is the truth. And so truth is rooted in The ultimate reality, prime reality, who is Jesus himself? And so truth has to be rooted in reality. Jesus is that reality. Therefore, this is important, track with me. If you are living your life, or if you are, say it this way, governing, leading your life, Outside of Jesus, you are living a lie. You following me? If he is truth, and we're not following him, and we're living by our own ideas or human wisdom or what feels right to us in any given moment or what seems to be right to us, but we're not governing our life according to who Jesus is and what he's revealed in his word, then we have to understand what we're doing. We are rejecting truth and we are living a lie, which is why Jesus says, abide in my word and I, the truth, will set you free. You see, the enemy wants us to believe the lie. He wants us to keep in this amnesia, and forget the truth and believe the lie that Jesus is not enough. Believe the lie that God is holding out on you. Believe the lie that God is keeping something good from you. He wants you to believe the lie that you can find joy and hope and pleasure in life outside of Jesus himself, who is life. He is our life. Like, this is who Jesus is. The enemy of our soul is called the father of lies for a reason. He wants us enslaved, far from the truth, far from God, far from joy, far from hope, and far from purpose. Our problem as humans is that we forget. We forget the truth. We forget about Jesus, and we go our own way, and in so doing, we forget the Holy One, the true one. We forget that when we're anxious or afraid, that God is with us. We forget that when we're depressed or facing an impossibility in our lives, We forget that Jesus' specialty is the impossible. That's what he does best. He does the impossible. He resurrects the dead. This is what Jesus is about, and we forget. And we think, oh, I can't do this. Well, of course you can't. Not in your power, you can't. But if you look to him and trust in him, who is the holy one, who is the true one, he will pull you away from the grime of this world that you're chasing and fill you with himself. Jesus is the Holy One, and he is the true one, and he is, he says, he has the key of David. 
Now, this is actually rooted in Old Testament prophecy. If you want to turn with me to Isaiah 22, it should, no, it might not be on the screens. I, I thought of this text just yesterday, so it probably isn't going to be on the screen, but that's okay. Isaiah 22, verse 21 through 22. Isaiah 22, verse 21. And I will clothe him with your robe and will bind your sash on him and will commit your authority to his hand and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key, you hear that? The key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut and he shall shut and none shall open. So when Jesus uses this language. It wasn't random. It was rooted in something that was prophesied almost 800 years earlier, that by dis- describing the historical context there, but it was pointing to Messiah, pointing to who Jesus is. So Jesus is quoting Isaiah 22 to say, that is about me, that Jesus has the key which refers to having authority. He is this promised king who will come, Messiah who holds the authority over the enemy. And then Jesus talks about this again in Matthew chapter 16. We don't have time to read that, but on your own time, I encourage you to. Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. Jesus picks up the same language from Isaiah 22 on, on this key of David. He talks about it again in Matthew 16, and then he quotes it yet again in Revelation chapter 3. So there is obviously some, some unity within the Bible, which is why we can trust it. It's God's word. So Matthew 16, brief context. Peter has just confessed Jesus as Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you're right. That was not in your mind. It was not flesh and blood, but it was the spirit. So you know this because... My spirit has worked in your heart, allowing you to see my worth, recognize that I am one with God, and I am Messiah that was revealed to you by this spirit. And then Jesus declares, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then Jesus mentions keys to the kingdom of heaven. Now, in Matthew 16, when this whole conversation is going on, it's in the city called Caesarea Philippi. Now, that was a significant city for the pagans who lived there because it was a very evil place. Like all kinds of paganism and shrines and immoral behavior, it's dark, and we don't have to get into details here this morning, but it was a very dark existence in Caesarea Philippi. So picture idols and shrines and just evil worship practices. So the pagans believed that there was a cave right next to Caesarea Philippi that was literally a gate into the underworld, a gate into hell. And so whenever you had like an opening into the ground, especially if there's running water, which there was in Caesarea Philippi, they believed, oh, that is a doorway into the underworld, and they believed that. And it really became a satanic stronghold is what it was. And so Jesus is right there in the same pagan, evil city, and he very likely was hanging out out there and points to that cave and tells his disciples, the very gates of hell, this doorway to Hades will not be able to resist the power of God at work through his people. You're going to take it to the enemy, to this satanic stronghold, to this gate of hell. It's not as though a gate is attacking the people of God. It's the church who is on the offensive against the gate of hell. That is what you see in Matthew 16. 
He says, the gates of hell will not be able to stand against the power of God at work through his people, and he accomplished it through his death and resurrection. He's doing it through the gospel. So in that same text, at the 16, when Jesus says, I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, the keys that he's giving is the gospel. The gospel is the key, because what is it that unlocks a prisoner's chains? The gospel. What is the key that unlocks those walls that keep people locked up and far from God? The gospel is the key that unlocks that. It is the good news of a resurrected Messiah who has come to liberate the captives, to set them free, to celebrate Jubilee. This is why Jesus came, and it is the message, the good news of Jesus that sets people free, free from shame and guilt and addiction and death itself and resurrected and made new. The gospel is not about defense. It is about offense. It is offensive. We are designed to take it. The church is called to go and to overcome Satan and to transform evil places like Caesarea Philippi and like Philadelphia and like Temple, Texas. Because there's darkness here too. It is not be deceived. We're called to recognize the supreme worth of Jesus, the Holy One, the true one who has this key of David, who opens the door for us to then go and reach people that are far from God. You know, the very essence of what the gospel does is it allows us to worship. That's what it does. It, it's the passageway that allows us to be made and you receive a spirit so that we will then Worship. The end, the goal is worship. Let me give you three words of what worship looks like. It's not complicated. We teach our kids this. Love, trust, and obey. Whatever you love the most, your affections, whatever you love is what you worship. What you trust in, your security, your hope, what you're trusting in, what you're depending on, that is what you worship. And what you obey is what you worship. And some of you guys worship your career or your business or your money. You love it. Your identity, your hope, your worth is wrapped up in your job. You love it. And you trust it. Your security, your hope is wrapped up in your job. You will sacrifice for it. And so you will obey. You obey your master. You sacrifice your health. You won't even eat or sleep enough. You sacrifice your family. You sacrifice everything. You give it all up because you are obeying your God. You are submissive. You are obedient to the demands of the taskmaster saying, give me more. And you say, yes, master. Give up your wife for me. Yes, master. Sacrifice your health for me. Absolutely. Done. Give it all up for me. And we do it. We give ourselves to the things of this world, idols that demand and slave drive us, and we go deeper down into it, and we give ourselves to it, and we love it. And all of a sudden, we wake up and they realize, what is happening to me? What's happened is you have been loving and trusting and obeying something other than Jesus. Because if you are loving Jesus and trusting him, that will lead you to want to obey him. This is all connected. Because we have seen supreme worth. And so we see that he's a holy one. And we see that he is a true one. And he has the key. And so we give it to him. And we cry out, Jesus, whatever it takes. Jesus, take it all. Jesus, I want you more. The thing is, when you give up for Jesus, what you get back is more of Jesus. 
You get more of his presence, more of his joy. And so really, what are you giving up? You're, you're giving up eating with pigs to go eat with Jesus. That You're giving up this in this world for real hope and joy. Uh, our time is going to run out. We're on verse 7. We have verse, verses 8 through 13 to get to. So we have to pick up some speed here. Verse 7 is describing the supreme worth of Jesus, and a healthy church recognizes it. Verses 8 through 13 describes what that looks like. So the next few verses describe, okay, if you're seeing more worth in Jesus, what does that result in? What does it look like for us as a church? And so there's two characteristics of a vibrant church. The first one is we desire the purpose of Jesus. So a vibrant church results in desiring the purpose of Jesus. In verse 8, Jesus says that he has set an open door before them. Now, this is not random. He's quoting, again, Isaiah, Old Testament, chapter 45, verse 1, describes the Messiah will open a door. And then in verse 6, again, this is in Isaiah 45, verses 1 and 2, describe the Messiah being an open door. And then verse 6 describes why. It says that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other that the people may know. For the nations to know. So when you see an open door, the point is mission. Spreading the gospel, church planting, reaching the unreached, reaching the unchurched, those that are still in darkness, those who do not see the supreme worth of Jesus, the people that are blind to him and don't care about him, haven't heard of him, don't love him, and are living a life of darkness and slavery. And so this open door is all about walking through Jesus himself, to reach his people. Which is why in John chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Your soul will be at rest. You go through Jesus. There is no other way to the Father, except through the door himself, Jesus. And he's opening up the door for us to go and to see people come to faith. And so if you look in Revelation chapter 7, you turn the page, verses 9 and 10, it describes a multitude of every tribe, nation, and tongue that no one can number, that no one can count. And all of these people are together worshiping the Lamb. That is the purpose of God. And so here's the kicker. Can you make yourself desire to reach the lost? Can you make yourself care to take a stand when you're called to do so? Can you make yourself love the loveless? Can you make yourself stand for the vulnerable, for the unborn? Can you make yourself have the desire on your own? Can you manufacture a desire to live on fire with a missional zeal? Can you make yourself want to sell everything that you own and move to a different country to reach the unreached? Do you think that you can make yourself do that? No way. You can't. You can't cannot make yourself, you cannot conjure up these desires. So where do they come from? Where do these desires come from? Seeing the supreme worth of Jesus. When you see his worth and his spirit begins to then change your heart, you will find yourself desiring him. A healthy church sends people 
It's not as though people get sent and that makes a church healthy. Wrong. No. A church that's unhealthy, no one cares. No one wants to reach their neighbors. No one wants their home group to grow and multiply to reach more people. No one wants to do that if the church is unhealthy. We give ourselves to this mission when there is health, when there is a passion for Jesus. When, when we are seeing his worth, the result is a desiring the purpose of God, even when it's hard. It says, I know you have but little power. I know you're weak. I know you're small. But you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Man, is that not what you want Jesus to say about you? That's what I want. That's really all I want. Like, that to me, that's why I get up in the morning. This is why I'm alive. This is what fuels me, is to hear Jesus say, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. And they were facing opposition and onslaught of Satan. He talked about the synagogue of Satan that was opposing them. In the middle of this satanic stronghold, they were still walking through this open door to see people coming into the kingdom. They were world changers. This small church was used powerfully by God. What will happen to you is if you will truly be captivated by Jesus, is your heart will change and you will care about things that you've never cared about before. You'll find yourself desiring, having a burden for other people to come and worship God alongside of us. So what happens to a vibrant church that is seeing supreme worth in Jesus? One, desiring his purpose. Two, as we wrap up, depending on the promises of God. So desiring the purpose of God and depending on the promises of God. Verses 9 through 13 describe this. It describes how, yes, it was very hard with opposition from the enemy, but they took a stand. And what gave them this strength? Like, what was the fuel? They were depending on the promises of God. Like we read earlier, verse 9, that they knew that they were loved. They were trusting in the sovereign purposes of God. And depending upon his promises, there are three. We'll go through them quickly. There's three promises in these verses. Verses 9 and 10 is the first promise. He promises his protection. So we depend upon the promise of his protection. He says a synagogue of Satan. And he says that because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming. And so there was more persecution, there was more hardship that was coming. And yet he promises them protection. He didn't promise them that they wouldn't suffer, but spiritual protection and strength and endurance in the middle of it. And whatever you're facing, you can depend upon this promise that he will guard you and protect you and he will lead you as you're taking it to the enemy. Next, he promises his promptness. Verse 11, I am coming soon. He is prompt. He's never late. I know it feels like we're like, Jesus, where are you? Show up. And it's like, Jesus says, I, I, I got this. I'm never late. I'm always on time. He's always prompt. He's never late. He says, I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have, which is what? The gospel. God's Word, Jesus himself, hold on, don't give in. Keep taking it to the end, keep walking in faith. So he promises his protection, his promptness. And number three, he promises his presence. You see it in verse 12. He says that he will make us into a pillar in the temple of God and never shall we go out of it. You see, in AD 17, there was a massive earthquake 
and all of the temples in this area were all knocked down. Pillars were all broken and, and toppled over and had to be rebuilt. And so whenever the Church of Philadelphia is listening about these pillars that will never fall, there's history there. He's saying, I know the pagan temples fell, but my church will not be shaken. It will not fall, and you will be a pillar. You will be in the kingdom of God. You will be in the presence of God, and you will never leave. You will always be. And so we believers have the Holy Spirit in us, and so we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We have his protection, his promptness, and his presence that he is promising to us. And so we depend on these. There's so many more. This is just from these verses. These promises. Describes having a new name. It's amazing. No more guilt. And even this comes from Isaiah 62, when he describes that we receive a new name. God promises to give people a new name where we'll have no more guilt and no more shame. Again, Isaiah 62. And he says, Then you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. This is verse 5. Again, Isaiah 62, verse 5. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Brother, sister, are you aware that God is rejoicing over you? Let go of whatever that shame or guilt, let go of whatever is holding you back. Give that pain to Jesus. Let him heal you. Feel him rejoicing over you, loving you, empowering you to live the life that he's calling you to live so you can be part of a church that does take it to the enemy and that is radiating the glory of God because there are so many people in this city, let alone across the planet, that don't see his worth, don't know his presence, don't know his love. He's calling us to be the ones that will bring his renewal here in Bill County and across the world.